Let's open the word of the Lord together once more to the epistle of James. If you're just joining us this morning, our summer series of messages is from this little epistle. And at the pace we're going, we might be finished by next summer. We're going to look at chapter 1 again and begin our reading this morning in verse 13. We're about to examine a very important paragraph in this little epistle. It is extremely important. It is extremely relevant and vital. In fact, it's been called one of the most penetrating discussions of the nature of temptation in the whole Bible. This is a big topic that James is about to expose to us. It is a complex topic. And there are many questions that you will have, that we all have, and that the first audience had as James penned these words. Questions about temptation, where it comes from, what is its nature, what are we to do when we face temptation. All of that will be dealt with in this paragraph as we slowly process through it over the next several Sundays. But let's hear the reading of God's Word from James 1, and I'm going to read from verse 13 through verse 15 from the English Standard Version. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And now may the Lord bless the proclamation and the hearing of his word. Having read that incredible paragraph, we want to pause for just a moment and consider some of the topics that are surfaced there. We want to get a lay of the land, and later we'll go through the details, but let's just see what James is putting on the table for us to take in this morning. You can read those words, and first you can surmise that James is going to reveal to us the source of temptation. Where does it really come from? And initially, James is going to to come at it from the negative. He's going to tell us where it does not come from. And that may surprise us. It may shock us. And then with disarming clarity, James will say its true source is somewhere you're not looking. It's where you don't expect it. And in so many words, he's going to say, look in the mirror if you want to know where temptation begins. That may surprise us, it may offend us, but it is the word of the Lord. And so we're going to discover where temptation really comes from. And then we're also going to discover, as you've probably anticipated when we read that word together, that he will talk about God's role in temptation. What does God have to do with this? Maybe when you've been tempted or are being tempted even now, the question that's banging around in your mind is, where is God in all of this? The God who tests us, we've been looking at that, he often tests us. James says it. The God who tests us, does he not also tempt us? Does God tempt me to do evil? What part does God play when I'm under assault by the devil or by my own flesh? Where is the Lord? And so James is going to deal with the role God, our Father, our wonderful Heavenly Father plays in this whole experience of temptation. And then he's going to tell us how temptation works. We're going to do with James' leadership a diagnosis of temptation. How does it work? How does it progress? How is temptation 
consummated. That is, how does temptation end? Where is it going? And you can read it here as James speaks with such clarity. It ends, as he says, in death. And so this is a very important discussion. Nothing could be more relevant and nothing could be more immediate to all of us. And as we go through this section in the next several weeks, many of our false beliefs and misconceptions about the nature of sin and temptation are going to be shattered as we simply confront the word of the Lord and read it and understand it in the way that James intended it. And so we're going to go very slowly through these words and very much prayerfully through these words as we seek to understand all that the Lord's brother James is laying out in front of us. But there's something else we need to do before we we dig into verse 13 at least. And that is, we want to understand the connection between what James says here in this paragraph, verses 13 through 15, and what he said in the first 12 verses, because they are connected. And we want to understand that connection. And so let's remember just a few things about how these are connected. You might remember that we've looked at how James calls the church to a joyful endurance even under trial. The the epistle commences with James uh, telling us, ordering us to count it all all joy when we we encounter a, a host of different kinds of trials, various kinds of outward tribulations and adversities. He says, that's an occasion for joy. And we remember that his first audience was an audience made up of suffering Christians. You can read this in the opening verse. He is writing to the 12 tribes. That's his Old Testament symbolic way of describing the entire company of the redeemed, the the believers in Jesus. You could well render that. He's writing to the church of Jesus Christ. And they are the ones who are in the dispersion, as he says there in the opening verse. They've been scattered. Now, the reason they've been scattered around the known world is because of persecution, because they're not having their best life now. They are suffering. They are suffering in the fires of tribulation because of their loyalty to Jesus. And they face, as he says here, various kinds of trials. We don't know what all those were, but we can, we can guess there was economic adversity for Jesus' sake. Some were in prison. Maybe some had been martyred. It was not going well, and yet James says, when this falls on you, it's coming from the hand of God, and you are to stop in your tracks and rejoice, because what is happening to you always happens to God's people. Always. And James, the brother of Jesus, has it on good authority. He is actually almost repeating what Jesus said. In the world, you will have tribulation. And he is writing to saints who indeed are experiencing everything Jesus warned us about. They are experiencing tribulation, and yet they're called to a joy-filled endurance, a joy-motivated, a joy-characterized perseverance. They're to rest in the Father's great purposes. They're to trust in the Father's great provisions when all seems to be out of control. And then there's another point of connection. 
James has talked about the necessity of wisdom, verse 5. Without this wisdom from God, we can't see things the way they really are. We are deceived. And this wisdom that God loves to give, and he loves to give generously, this wisdom allows us to see our circumstances, whatever they may be, to see them from God's perspective, not from our perspective. And when we have God's wisdom, we see his hand in all things. Even though they are painful and perplexing and difficult and sometimes overwhelming, we see the hand of God, that God is, because he's sovereign, causing all things to work together for good to those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And so wisdom teaches that the, the, the person without wisdom, James says, they're double-minded. You can read that in verse 8. They are unstable. They're, they're full of doubt. And so we need God's wisdom to be resilient, to endure and to glorify Christ no matter what our circumstances are. And then there's another point of connection as we string these together. We saw last Lord's Day how amazingly James pronounces a beatitude on those who suffer. You can see it for yourself in verse 12. That's the very word, blessed, that we find in the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, blessed. It's a, it's a beatitude pronounced on those who endure external trial. And James is claiming that there are wonderful blessings the Lord will give to those who remain steadfast even while suffering through all kinds of adversity. Whoever holds on to Christ and his word, there are blessings now and there are blessings later. Fullness of life now on this side of heaven and eternal life when Jesus comes. And that's crazy, isn't it? It is crazy to say that those who are suffering are most blessed. But that is exactly the claim the brother of Jesus is making. We think the blessed life is freedom from adversity. And James is saying the blessed life is lived in the fiery furnace. The furnace of affliction. The furnace of suffering. The furnace of adversity. Those who hold on to Jesus will survive the mighty winds when they blow. The fog will descend, and there will be no assurance except Jesus and his word. And that's a blessed place to be, to have nothing but Jesus and his word. So there's a beatitude for those who suffer. And then this final connection is about love, for we see in verse 12 that James tells us that the blessings, those innumerable, incomprehensible blessings that fall upon the church even in their times of suffering. They are, they are reserved, those blessings are reserved for those who love God. And we extracted from this line that love for God promotes and sustains our endurance. It is our love for God that keeps us faithful and loyal and committed to Him. And there are Many blessings associated with that. And then we come to verse 13. And as you've read it with me this morning, you can see that James moves seamlessly from a discussion of trials to a discussion of temptation. He moves from one verse to the next. He moves from one subject to the next. 
We face various trials, he says. The Lord sends them to make us stronger. He sends them to test our faith. He sends them to promote our love for him. And then in verse 13, he mentions temptations. The trials come from the Lord, James says. And then on a dime, he flips around and says, temptations absolutely do not come from the Lord. And here we're left with many questions. Here we encounter what appears to be a big contradiction. We find ourselves this morning immersed in a deep theological quandary. The Lord sends tribulations, but he doesn't tempt us. The sovereign king who ordains all that comes to pass, I mean, that's what we believe. We believe that God ordains all that comes to pass. And yet, he doesn't tempt us. He tests us, but he doesn't tempt us. How are we to understand this? Here is, a, here is an apparent contradiction. How will we find our way out? So let's start talking about temptation and try to answer some of the questions that you have that the first century audience had when they read this letter, those perpetual questions about God and trials and temptations and evil. If we're careful, we can see that there is a connection between outward trials and inner temptations. Maybe you haven't thought about it, but, but if you begin to think about it, you'll see there's a very definite link between external trials that are from the hand of God to promote our good and, and temptations. There's the tightest of associations between them, between times of testing divinely designed and temptations to abandon the very Lord who is testing us. They seem to occur together. And what makes this connection so explicit, and maybe you don't see it so readily in the English translations, but as James first wrote this letter, he uses the exact same word for trial and temptation. They come from the same linguistic family. They are virtually the same word. And he's teaching us something. The trials... In the first 12 verses, the trials are those external pressures, those adversities that we, account, that we encounter along the way as we serve the Lord. And then we come to verse 13, and he uses that same word in a different sense, temptation. And what is, what is a temptation? What is it to be tempted? That, that's something very sinister and dark. And if we examine this word tempted in its, in its biblical landscape, it means to be enticed or provoked to do evil. It is a provocation to sin. It is an enticement to sin. It is a solicitation to sin. And trial and temptation are connected. In the experience of trial, God is moving us toward maturity through the outward circumstances that he has arranged in his great wisdom for our good. But to be tempted is a very malevolent and evil thing. It is to be seduced into the violation of God's will, 
to be prompted to disobey, to abandon him, to not trust him, to fall short of his glory. As Paul succinctly defines what sin is in the book of Romans, to fall short of his glory. And what James is saying, and this bears, this bears itself out in our experience, what James is saying is that every trial is also a temptation. It depends on the perspective you have. Every trial is a temptation. It has been said that all trials have in them the element of temptation, and all temptations have in them the element of trial. They travel together. And James is a pastor. He's an under-shepherd of the flock of God. He's very concerned about those to whom he has written. And here's his concern. His concern is that while they're in the fires of affliction, suffering, suffering the Lord has sent them into for his glory. He is concerned that at the same time, they would be tempted to abandon their commitment to Christ, to compromise, to surrender, to give up to the forces of wickedness and hostility to the kingdom of the Lord. He is concerned, if you want to get an example in your mind, he is concerned that the church and the dispersion, those dispersed Christians of the first century, would begin to act like ancient Israel. We've just come through a study of that in the last several months, and we saw how the Lord rescued his people from oppression in Egypt. And he delivered them, he blessed them, he performed mighty miracles, seemingly one after another, to convince them of his love and his sovereignty. But you know what they did when they got in the wilderness? Having been liberated, having been saved, having been redeemed, they were tempted in the wilderness. Their very liberation provided an opportunity for temptation. And we find them always saying, when they faced adversity in the wilderness, always saying, I wish I was back in Egypt. And this is what James is concerned about for the church and for you. In the fires of affliction, we are tempted like Israel to say, let's go back to the place where at least we had three square meals. Let's go back to the place, though we were slaves, at least there was someone watching over us, so to speak, a great king. At least we weren't in the middle of nowhere trusting the Lord. The temptation is to go back, to abandon our commitment to Yahweh, to Christ, to go back to the life we knew before he saved us, to compromise. And this is what James is afraid of. And so every test is also a temptation. If you're having trouble accepting this fact, uh, let me help you out a little bit. We hear this repeated theme in all of Scripture, and we hear it from the lips of Jesus. You see, the brother of Jesus has written this epistle, and I I have no doubt that he is standing on his brother's shoulders theologically and spiritually as he, as he tries to apply the teachings of his brother to the church. Remember, remember something that Jesus said that's recorded in Luke 9? As Jesus was making his way through the first century world, he was attracting many would-be disciples. And one day he turned 
And he spoke to those who had come forward to say, I want to follow you. I want to be in your band of disciples. And Jesus said some very strange and, and even harsh things. And I want to read them to you now from Luke 9. Luke records, as they were going along the road, that is Jesus and his disciples, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus turned and said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Sounds like a warning, doesn't it? Luke says, another one said to him, I will follow you, Jesus. But first, let me go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Not much encouragement there, is it? Sounds like a warning. Another person said, I will follow you, Lord, wherever you go. But first, there's always the buts. First, let me say goodbye to those at home. And then Jesus said this to that man, no one, and listen to what he said, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. And I would submit to you, this is James' concern. When affliction comes, do we abandon Christ? With the test that God sends to strengthen our faith, to strengthen our love, to promote Christian graces in us, it is also a temptation, isn't it? And we're going to discover the source of that temptation later, but there's a temptation there with that test. And then we think of something else Jesus said twice. Now, if he said something once, that's important, but twice, twice Jesus said this, once in Matthew 10 Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, You will be hated by all on account of my name. Welcome to the kingdom. You will be hated by all on account of my name. And then he uttered this line that we might find confusing, but I think in this context it makes perfect sense. He said, But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. This is what James is saying. Jesus is not teaching there that endurance earns salvation. He is telling us that endurance evidences salvation. And James is concerned that the dispersed saints would endure. And then again, in Matthew 24, Jesus elaborated on this amazing thing he said in Matthew 10. In the 24th chapter of the same gospel, he says, Then they will deliver you to tribulation. And he's talking to the church there. They, the, the, the adversaries of the kingdom, the powers of the world, the wicked forces of evil in high places will deliver you to tribulation and they will kill you and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And at that time, many will fall away. Affliction will come and many Will, that is, many professing Christians will fall away. They will not endure. And they will betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and mislead many. And because lawlessness, he says, because lawlessness is increased, the love that many people have, the love for God, the love for one another will grow cold. 
And then Jesus repeats what he said earlier, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. God's purpose for his people is that they endure. This is why James wrote the letter. This is why he says in the opening lines, God sends us times of testing to promote, to produce endurance and steadfastness. And that's the mark of a true disciple, that we endure, that we walk faithfully with Christ, even through fiery furnaces, that we don't abandon him. Someone has well said that Every circumstance we face as children of God requires a decision. Will we persevere and go on with God? Or will we listen to that voice which suggests the easy way of disobedience and disloyalty? You see, every trial is also a temptation. Without the wisdom of God, things get distorted. We don't see the divine intent of the trials, and trials and temptations are virtually indistinguishable, and our loyalty to God is already compromised. And so James issues nothing less here than a stern warning to the church, to those who may be about to abandon their resistance, who might be tempted to go with the flow rather than standing their ground, holding on to Christ, holding on to his word, and enduring with joy. In the word of God, there are examples, there are illustrations of this danger. And I want to give you two that that you will immediately recognize to show you the connection between trials and, and temptations. I want to first think of an example or an illustration from the life of King Solomon. You know, Solomon, the son of David, who came to the throne following his father's death, we know how the Lord blessed Solomon and said to him, Solomon, ask what you wish in prayer and I'll give it to you. And we know that Solomon thought for a moment and he said, I want wisdom. I can't lead your people. I can't be a king unless I have your wisdom. And so he, he, he seeks wisdom from the Lord, and the Lord gives him wisdom. And then the Lord says, because you asked for wisdom, I'm going to give you something else. I'm going to make you incredibly rich. I'm going to bless you unlike I've blessed any other human being. And so the Lord gave him wisdom and great riches. And we read in 1 Kings 10 this amazing description of King Solomon. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put into his mind. But you know what Solomon didn't see? And James would make sure that we see it. Solomon did not see that the blessing of wealth that the Lord gave him was itself a test. It was a test. Would he love God? Would he be content with Yahweh, his king? Would he use his wealth and his wisdom and his great mind for the glory of God? Would he love the Lord as tried by prosperity 
And remember, we've seen James hint at the fact here in these first 12 verses that sometimes trials come in the form of prosperity. And here's a man tested by prosperity. And sure enough, you know how the tragic story of Solomon's life unfolds in the Word of God. Let me just read one, one passage that tells us everything we need to know about Solomon and how he handled the test the Lord sent him. There was a, a test and there was a temptation. The Word says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Along with the daughter of Pharaoh, he loved Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. He loved them. He married them. He violated God's command. God had said, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they marry you, for surely they will turn your heart after their gods. He had all the wealth in the world. And every woman of note was attracted to him and he to them. And you know what? At the end of the day, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And the word says, his wives turned away his heart from the Lord. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart to other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord God. And Solomon went after, after the Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not follow fully the Lord his God. And so with the test of prosperity, what everyone else would consider a massive blessing, there was a temptation. Would he use his gifts, his blessings, to serve the Lord? Would he hold on to the Lord? And he did not. And he succumbed. And we remember Solomon not as a great king, but as a great failure, as a compromiser. And then there's another illustration equally dramatic from the New Testament. The Apostle Paul is known for a lot of things he wrote, or a lot of sayings that come from Paul that are very, very noteworthy, that echo in our minds. And we remember among those his conversations with us about the thorn in the flesh. We, we've adopted that even into our modern vernacular. We speak of having a thorn in the flesh. And that comes right from the Apostle Paul and his time of testing. In 2 Corinthians 12, he speaks of the thorn the Lord gave him. And we know why the Lord gave him that thorn. Probably it was a physical illness. We know why the Lord gave it to him. He tells us that. The Lord gave him that thorn because Paul needed to grow in the virtue and the grace of humility. He had seen many incredible things. I mean, my goodness, he was writing half the New Testament. He was the apostle of apostles, the missionary of missionaries, the theologian of theologians, and he had witnessed things, as he describes here in his autobiography, that are too incredible to speak of. And so he says, to keep me from promoting myself, to keep me from exalting myself, that's his exact word, to keep me from exalting myself, he says in 2 Corinthians, there was given me, in that line, there was given me, doubtless informs us that Paul believed the thorn came as a gift from God. God tested me. 
God put me in the fire of affliction to promote spiritual growth, particularly to promote spiritual growth in humility. And listen to the way Paul characterizes it. There was, there was on one side of the coin this thorn in the flesh that was a gift from God, a test to make me love him more, to make me more fit for service, to qualify me to serve him, a gift from God. And then he spins around and he says the thorn is also a messenger of Satan, a messenger of Satan. And there Paul is very candidly telling us that there was a temptation with that thorn. It was a test from God, but it was also a time of temptation to give up. Certainly there was an easier way to live to give up, to, to give in, to rebel against the Lord and his what to complain, to doubt, to compromise, to abandon the faith altogether. And that's the way it is with every test, be it with affliction or with prosperity. With every test, there is a temptation. And now you know how temptations and trials are connected. They go together. And maybe now, this morning, you can recognize how you are being tempted, even in your trials, how you and, and me and all of us are being tempted to use God's gifts for ourselves and not for Him. How, how we are being tempted to, to take the easy road and, and to compromise, to, to get out of the firing line for Christ. to shade a little bit or to shave off a little bit the edges of our doctrine so the world will not hate us so much. And think about the way God has blessed you, how the blessings the Lord has given you can become tests and temptations. Think about your possessions that God has has given you. We've examined this passage in the last several weeks and we've heard James speak about the poor and by any measure, we are all rich. We are rich beyond the wildest dreams of most of humanity. And with those blessings comes the temptation, will we use our possessions for his glory? How often do you see it? How often do I see it that the Lord blesses someone with material prosperity and their commitment to Christ gets weaker. It's easier to stay in the vacation home on the Lord's day than it is to travel back into town. It is easier to say, my life is too complicated. I've got so many things to care for. My calendar is full, my children are busy, my grandchildren are busy, all blessings, and yet our commitment to Christ gets weaker. Or think about your health, how God has blessed so many of us with good health. We, we pray every Lord's Day for those suffering, and there are many, many in our congregation who are suffering, but there are many of us who have absolutely Nothing to complain about. We are blessed with health. But how often, how often our health 
becomes an excuse for not serving Christ, for using my body, my energy in pursuits that lessen and diminish and quell my love for Christ. You see, with, with every blessing, with every, with every trial, there is a temptation. Or your job, or your family, and on and on we could go. All the things the Lord has richly blessed us with are tests of our faith, tests of our love and our loyalty. And they, if we are not careful, will become profound temptations to do what Christ has ordered us not to do, to look back. And this is the concern of the brother of Jesus, that we understand how trials and temptations are connected. Now, we're going to go further into this and, and answer perhaps more questions that you have, but we want to think just about a couple of things as we prepare to come to the table of the Lord with these verses in our minds this morning. You can see, can't you, with me, why it is that the life we live now as Christians really matters to God. You're, you're probably like me. You, you've wondered, why doesn't the Lord just bring us to faith in Christ and then rapture us to heaven? Wouldn't that be incredible if the minute you became a Christian, you, you got to leave and you avoided all this pain and difficulty? But you can see that the Lord doesn't do that. He redeems us, and then he deploys us. He puts us in the world as missionaries. And so the lives we live now matter, and the way we live them now matters. He wants to display his grace and power in us now. Oh, indeed, he's going to be glorified in us over yonder, as the old country preacher would say. But he wants to be glorified in us now. It's as if our Father wants to point to us and say, There are my people. And some of them are suffering in the fires of affliction. And some of them are suffering in the fires of prosperity. They are being tested, but they are resisting temptation. They are loyal to me. Look at them. Look at them. They are they are not living the life they're going to live. Many of them are suffering in a most perplexing way that defies all rational explanation. And yet look at them. They're holding on to me. They will not go downstream with the world. Look at them. It's as if the Father is so proud of his work in us. That, that's why he keeps us here. And that's our purpose, that not only would we be redeemed, but even now in our struggles, in our temptations, by our joyful obedience, by our refusal to go back, Christ is honored in us. This is why we're here. And it's why we must understand trials and temptations. So whatever you're going through now, be it a trial or a time of profound temptation, remember what God's design is. What is his plan? That by your joyful endurance, by your steadfast perseverance and resilience, 
the reality of the gospel will be sounded from your life and your lips. May God grant us wisdom. May God grant us grace to see things from his perspective and to endure joyfully and faithfully. Would you take a moment to prepare your heart to come to the table of the Lord?